0: Hello, I'm David Kern.
1: I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor.
0: And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader. And we are here to discuss chapters 17 through 20 of Charlotte Bronte's great novel, Jane Eyre. Um, we've got a lot to talk about this week. Before we dive into the book though, I want to ask everybody to remember and to pray for Tim, um, our regular here on the show. His, his dad passed away after a lengthy battle with cancer in the last week. And if you're following him on social media or part of the Facebook group, you may already know this, but um, I know that a lot of you don't. And we just wanted to uh, ask you to keep him and his family and especially his mom in your prayers, be thinking about them. So I wanted to let Tim know that we're thinking about him and there's a lot of love for you, Tim, and we're praying for you guys and, and we love you. So I just wanted to start with that. Heidi, I don't know if you want to say anything. I wanted to give you a chance.
2: Uh, it is. I just talked to Tim and he was saying that it's just so up and down and uh, to lose a loved one after a long battle with cancer. And yeah, so I know that the prayer is, it is very meaningful to him. He doesn't see it as like, oh yeah, thoughts and prayers with you. But like, it's really meaningful to him to know that everyone's praying for him. So And also feel free to reach out on Facebook, send him a message or something like that. I know that would mean a lot to him.
0: Yeah, so he's continuing with, the plays the thing and things like that. And you'll see him back, well, you'll hear him back here on the show after we finished up with Jane Eyre and we dive into Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses, which happens to be one of Tim's most favoriteist novels. <laughs> so just wanted to let, let people know to be praying for them and to let him know that we're thinking about him. There's not really a good way to transition out of that, but with that, we'll dive into our conversation on, on Jane Eyre. And as with the last couple episodes, I have asked Heidi to give an oral narration of, of what happened in the chapters. But Heidi texted me that she prepared something a little more this time. So, you know, this is Heidi is a classic three. You know, she's, she's tr- making sure that she's ready now. It would be really funny if I flipped it and even now it that was. she has prepared and made Karen do it. But I'm not going to do that because that would be cruel to Heidi, who'd put this work into it. So, Heidi, I did what because I get, so in chapter 17 20?
2: I get so nervous when you're like, it used to be final thoughts. When I first started on the podcast, our listeners will even remember this. I always would write down my final thoughts because I'm like, what if I run out of thoughts?
0: When so. <laughs> you realize so anyway, that hadn't now happened. It's,
2: now it's narrations what happened in the last, like, well, I'm going to forget something. I know I will. And then what happens? <laughs> nothing, nothing happens. There's no big deal. But I did indeed write down, I'd prepared a written narration of the chapters. This is, multi- so go. I,
0: this is multiple pages that she has in front of us. I don't I know if you need pages. this much detail, Heidi.
2: <laughs> it's not that much detail. It's just a lot of things happen, which is why I was afraid
0: you, so, you were, okay, you were, yes, all right. This is true, a lot did happen. So, yes. Uh, but because you have prepared, this now means that there is actual pressure. And so, Karen, you now have to look out and make sure that she didn't miss anything and you have the opportunity to correct her. <laughs> she brought this her. Right.
2: <laughs> I brought it upon myself, upon my own head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, all right. So, I, I to go ahead. What happened in chapters
0: 17 through 20?
2: Oh, well, just off the top of my head. Yeah, in this right. week's reading- Jane continues to pine for Mr. Rochester in his absence, and he's expected to arrive home to Thornfield soon with a house party of elegant ladies and gentlemen, including Miss Blanche Ingram, who is rich, beautiful, accomplished, and everything that Jane is not. Uh, So Jane supposes Mr. Rochester to be Blanche Ingram's suitor, and when the party arrives, Jane and Adele, I really like this, think it's so compelling, this part that they sit on the banister and listen to what's going on in the drawing room, uh, kind of creating this image of there being outsiders uh, to the to what's going on in the house, um, excluded from the company of these elegant ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but as the days go by, Jane observes Mr. Rochester interacting with his guests, particularly Miss Ingram, whom he lavishes with attention. And this is really painful to Jane for two main reasons. Number one, the guests treat her with indifference and even contempt. Uh, and number two, she is uh, finally forced to Check out all the Fs in this sentence, you guys. Finally forced to frankly face her feelings for Mr. Rochester. (laughs) Um, And she realizes that she's in love with him and she supposes that he is indifferent to her. Uh, And all of this is excessively painful to Jane. Meanwhile, she notices that Miss Ingram's is selfish and superficial and willful and cruel to Adele, uh, who she seems to regard as a rival for Rochester's attentions. Uh, and readers get to, of course, gaze at the English country house culture which Bronte examines closely and largely seems to indict, it seems, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, for superficiality and injustice. Uh, The big event of the party is the appearance of an old gypsy fortune teller uh, who insists on privately reading the fortunes of all the young ladies, and she gives bad news, we can tell, to Miss Ingram. Uh, She reads the fortunes of all of the other young ladies, and she insists on seeing Jane, uh, who penetrates her disguise and identifies her as Mr. Rochester and their conversation I'm sure will be a topic of this podcast, so I won't get too much into it, Uh, but it is clear that Rochester does indeed cherish Jane, but we don't know how far that goes yet, Um, and at the end of their conversation, Jane alerts Rochester that a stranger has arrived at Thornfield. Uh, Mr. Mason in Rochester is visibly shaken by this news, Uh, and that very night, we have another gothic element of our very gothic story. Uh, uh, In the dead of night, there's a scream and a cry for help, and Rochester sends the guests back to bed but enlists Jane's aid. Uh, and Jane sits with Mr. Mason, who has been attacked, we assume, or she assumes, by Grace Poole. And she's somebody has attacked mr mason uh, and jane guards him as he's you know bleeding and wounded while rochester rides away to fetch a doctor so clearly we know now even more than a mystery is afoot but rochester reveals nothing uh, but the uh, our section of reading closes with rochester posing a hypothetical question to jane and essentially he says and this is paraphrasing Uh, He asks her if a wandering but repentant sinner may defy convention, and as he says it, the world's opinion, uh, to secure a chance at peace and happiness. So they are coming even closer together. Um, And in true Jane fashion, she just shuts him right down and tells him to do his duty and love God. Uh, And that is the close of our section of reading. How'd I do? Amazing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right. So you mentioned that we might talk about the um, possible indictment of this culture that Jane has, has been thrust into. And I want to address that by asking a question that I was thinking about while reading. Here's that question. Who is more villainous, Mr. Brocklehurst or Blanche Ingram?
1: Ooh, what a great question that is. That is a great question.
0: Or maybe the other way of saying, maybe the, maybe the way to enter into that question is for me to ask, who do you dislike more?
1: I was just about to say, you have
2: to give us a criteria by which to judge the villainy.
0: Well, I'm not necessarily saying that mm-hmm. your distaste for someone is the same as villainy, um, <laughs> but it's at least an way into it. Karen, you were about to say something.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's such a good question. And I want to say my Judgment also is the text's judgment. I want to say that. <laughs> so um, so you guys can disagree with me or, if you want. But I I mean, I think that Mr. Brocklehurst, because he is supposed to be a Christian and because he does these things in the name of, of Christianity, mistreating these mm. girls and being a hypocrite and and all of these things, I think he is more villainous. And I think Blanche Ingram is presented and is more of a, an indictment of society um than herself uh, because it is uh, it is society i mean this book is not satire for the most part although the you know this chat in chapter 17 i think we do have some as she presents these guests at the party but um i you know i think blanche ingram is um is Charlotte Bronte's criticism of the way her society conditions women to be. I mean, obviously, she's criticizing Brocklehurst as well, but I think in this society where women have so much less power, then Blanche Ingram is more a a victim of her society, Mm. you know, just as we see kind of in, in Austin with the girls that are always just kind of trained to be, um, play the piano and paint and be pretty and, um, not know anything worthwhile.
0: Mm. Brocklehurst has more agency in his yeah. villainy. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Do you agree with that, Heidi?
2: I do. I think that that's exactly right. I think that, uh, Blanche Ingram is, uh, as Karen said, a product of a flawed society, uh, and Brocklehurst is just cruel. And it's interesting. You talked about satire. Karen, I was reading this um, this week and kind of chuckling along with a couple of different, you know, interactions or whatever, until you get to, it does feel very satirical and kind of like this dark humor to it, until you see Jane, right? And the the cruelty and contempt with which they treat her and talk about governesses and, you know, the tears that spring to her eyes and uh, she can't hide, like those I, I really like how Bronte keeps it from becoming pure satire by reminding us that there's a human cost mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I was moved, particularly moved by that This in this reading, looking at the indictment of the culture um, that could be funny and could have this kind of lighthearted, like like a dark lightheartedness to it. I know that, that those two things don't go together, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, somehow- Yeah. Bronte always reminds us and yet, and yet Adele and yet Jane, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And maybe just to continue the conversation about Blanche a little bit, I mentioned this briefly last week about her name. You know, it means her, her name is supposed to suggest white in this. And of course the most obvious meaning of that is like, uh, you know, a rich woman who has um, porcelain fair skin because she's, doesn't work and you know she is protected from the elements um but there's also the idea of of blankness right like like a blank slate she's completely white uh, and, to, and can be written on by society so i i mm. think that her name or the choice of her name is just ingenious because i think at least both of those meanings are communicated in her character
0: i was intrigued by the way brontë describes you you know the part where Jane's looking at her and saying, well, I was checking to see if she actually looked like what Miss Fairfax said and then how my, my illustration of her looked. And then she says, yep, pretty much. It look exactly like that. And then she goes on to describe her. And it, the way she describes Blanche made me think of a sculpture. Mm. And or like. Um,
1: White marble.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that what you're saying there about how she could be written on it's almost like she could be, she could have been, she could be formed out of clay or out of mm-hmm. something carved or whatever, into whatever likeness the artist wants it to be. That, that's what, it, that's what struck me. Her, her description struck me as being similar to that whole scene though, reminded me of, you know, Bronte could have been writing 10 pages of uh, a mystery novel, hmm. you know, like, uh, like, a. Ross McDonald novel or something like that from the from the 40s where the detective is, or even the, just a Poirot novel, where the detective is on a train with a bunch of people and he's looking from person to person and we're getting introduced to them because he's doing some sleuthing, you know? And that's it, that's what it reminded me of where she has this curiosity about the culture that she's been thrust into. And so she's taking it all in and she's observing these people and there's this intrigue and there's this interest in potentially even being a part of it. But then that, this Wall immediately gets put up. She gets to Heidi's point. She immediately gets shut out. And part of it is that she's she's shy. She stays out of the way. She stays behind the curtain, basically. But whatever interest she thought she had in that culture, you know, is, she observes it and then is immediately cast aside from it. Which of course is interesting because then we know that that then leads to the conversation about convention, where our uh, our dark our dark uh, brooding ironic hero, hero <laughs> is. Uh, Potentially intrigued by her, but doesn't know if he can, you know, make a move. If, he's, if, he's <laughs> brave, if he's brave enough to subvert what's expected of him. Mm-hmm. And so it, that's really smart by Bronte to make Jane interested in being a part of it. Mm-hmm. And she's so interested that she is in detail, taking everything in, the clothes, the way they carry themselves. She's saying, I like, I think these people... I kinda of like these people, I don't like these people. I would be like this person. I would, would not want to be like this person. But then there's no opportunity for any of that to come to fulfillment, at least in that in that scene. I don't know where I was going with that.
2: <laughs> well, I think I no, I like that. I like that take a lot, David. And I I I think as I was reading it this time, and so often when I read kind of the upstairs, downstairs investigations of English novels, I I find myself so moved by the contradictions that are within the English country house, right? Because we have before this section of reading, Jane and uh, and Rochester form like a very domestic bond with each other over a period of time. Like they are together like parents with a child. They're sitting in a room at night after night, having conversations with Adele right there. Um, and, and there's there's this bond, and Jane comes to feel as though she is at home and valued by her employer as a person in her own right, which is everything that she longs for, right? And so she begins to fall in love with him, but she doesn't recognize that in herself, uh, even at the time. And then in this section, that's immediately taken from her; it's completely cut off from her. She's now an outsider, and and very aware of her status as being in the lower classes of, uh, and being kind of that in the middle. The governess is always in a hard position because they're not servants to be like welcomed into the servants hall. And yet they're not upper class enough to be in the drawing room while they're playing They're So they're, they're in this weird kind of liminal space within the household and, and, and Jane, because of her personal feelings for Rochester feels that very acutely, but underneath that, there's got to be also that sense of injustice at being left out of her own home and the domestic comforts of of this place that she's come to see as a home and that's kind of the inherent contradictions within this rigid class system especially in a situation like this in which there's different rules for different times when you have a house party the governess can't be around when when those the guests aren't here then she's practically a surrogate wife right it's very strange mm-hmm.
1: And just by the nature of her job as being a governess, she gets called because she she gets called in when they want to adore Adele, you know, when they want to fawn over her. You know, I mean, so so it's not even as though she's she's one of the other servants who can just kind of recede to the background entirely because she actually is attached to Adele and Adele has a rightful place in that society as an object, at least. So that pulls Jane in even more. I mean, I think even today we have, not that I know about this, but there are, you know, people who are nannies and I think the dynamics are probably really the same. I've had a relative who was a nanny and, you know, and basically was let go when she became too good at doing her job, you know, was doing too many things that the mother wanted, didn't want her to do because that was reserved for her, even though she wasn't there doing it. You know, it's really, huh. it's an interesting kind of familial dynamic and work and work dynamic. Right. Huh.
2: Interesting.
0: To what degree do you think Jane enjoys that work?
2: Jane doesn't seem to think too much about what she she's so driven by her duties here, right? She seems to like to have an affection for Adele and to find her work pleasant, but not challenging to her mind. And she's maybe starting to get a little restless. and and but when Rochester is there, that is like adds kind of the zest to life. She's a um a man who's paying attention to her and, and having interesting conversations that actually does challenge, actually do challenge her mind. But I mean, there's no room for a woman in her time to be thinking about what kind of meaningful work she wants to engage in to like, mm-hmm. you know, be, be engaging to her soul and draw her beyond herself. Like that's, that's, that's such a modern concept and completely foreign to, I mean, certainly to Jane, like she could be one thing she could teach in a school or she could be a governess or she could get married. That's it
1: and it's and it's actually largely true for most of the men too i mean the men don't mm-hmm. choose they don't choose what they do if if you're born if the men were born wealthy then their job is to be a steward of the lands that they own and the and the properties that they own and if you're not if a man wasn't born wealthy then he just does the job you know that his his father did. I mean, this is a time where some of that is beginning to change, but it's still even as much as it's changing, it's it's a it's a new idea. People just didn't find their their meaning in their work. And I think this phrase comes up later, but I, so but it's not really a spoiler. Or maybe it was at the beginning of her coming to Thornfield, where she talks about a new servitude. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Now we think of servitude in a pretty negative way uh, Mm -hmm. because it is something that's you know close to being like an indentured servant but you know in, in this world it's assumed that everyone serves in some way or another and that's all that there is you're you're serving um and so jane is just trying to figure out how she's going to serve the world in her station and yet try to figure out what to do with all these passions that she has and this desire to be loved.
0: Well, and that those last two things that you said, the passions and her desire to be loved are tied to the fact that she's now being asked to do things that go beyond her duties.
1: Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that are inflaming her passions in a kind of an unfair way because she can't really do anything about them in this situation.
0: One of the mysteries for Jane at this point is how how he feels about her. So what is, you guys have read this book so much. So this is kind of one of those tough questions to just take yourself out of that. But through this point... How, do you think Rochester knows how he feels about her? And to what degree do you think he, he, does he love her?
1: I think at this point, he is truly intending to marry Blanche Ingram because, you know, Because yes, it's what it's
0: expected of him.
1: Because it's, what is, it's what's expected of him. You know, he still, even the conversation he has with Jane toward the end of, of this reading about, you know, kind of telling part of his story. And it's clear that that's what he intends to do. And again, I think that there, I I think even he doesn't feel yet the freedom to even consider the questions he'll consider later in the novel, because he still sees his his only choices to be is being to marry someone to get some, what what does he call it? Relief. So romantic. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and again, his society, it would just not, you know, it would just uh, be... Yeah, it's hard to talk about this question without giving too much away because there's so many complexities to kind of figuring out what what's going through his mind because there are some limitations he has and the choices that he can make and he's not being entirely realistic all along. So Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, Seems like a guy he, who doesn't have a real exactly, grasp on reality. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right.
2: His his behavior in this whole section is so Bewildering to Jane. If he does have intentions toward Jane, it's inexcusable the way he treats her in this section.
0: That's why this is why I asked.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. he is intending to marry Blanche and Jane, and then meanwhile, Jane is like very compelling to him and he's constantly comparing them to. You know, comparing this shallow, superficial, young, you know, paragon to this to, to Jane and what he sees and values in her for herself, and and is trying to make a decision based on that, his behavior makes a little bit more sense, but it's not necessary. It's still not good to either of them. So he's he's not. He may be our brooding byronic hero, but he is he in this section, he presents almost nothing to admire, in my opinion.
0: Do you agree with that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I do. I do. And it just might be helpful to point out. I mean, it's not really explicit in this novel because that's not it's doing some other things, but it certainly was common or not unusual or rare for wealthy men to have affairs with servant girls. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we know Jane is not someone who's going to do do that, but it's completely realistic in this world for the master of the house to, you know, prey on a young servant girl and to treat her as his property in that way, whether it's just for, you know, conversation or flirtation or more, that was a kind of a normal... Thing. I'm not saying everyone did, but it was normal right. enough that you know, in, in Pamela, that's what everyone thought was was happening. And Henry Fielding himself had to marry his late wife's waiting maid because he impregnated her. and you know and this so, I mean, that was real life. So this sort of thing, that sort of dynamic that even though it's not brought out, it, it would not be an unusual thing for Rochester to just be kind of flirting with the servant girl because that's what that was common
0: Mm -hmm. how do your last okay so you said you didn't think he he was very he anything to admire here i think was the phrase that you used before right given that comment and then what Mm -hmm. karen added to that why does jane love him love him why does she continue her her because right now we know her obsession all that
2: yes Mm -hmm. yes Mm so right now she we know like we could even before this section we knew that she loved him right Was falling in love Mm -hmm. with him but she didn't know it herself or she was trying to hide it from herself at this point, she just flat out, you know, gazes at him while he's dining and it's like, I love him. So I think it's a really good question. What does she love about him? And it's, she loves that he sees her and she is, I think, tormented because she can't quite read him because he's, you know, he is paying all this attention to Blanche but then, you know, he's seeking her out in the hallway and you look like a bird trapped in a cage. Why are you crying? I wish I could talk to you about your feelings. So whenever some guy is like, I wish I could talk to you about your feelings because I noticed that you're crying. That's a little compelling to a woman, tiny bit. So that is, I, she, she is drawn to the kinship between them and she can't let go of that. And people don't, even, even Jane Eyre, People don't fall in love just because someone is virtuous. And I think that's one of the things that's explored in this novel that she, she is a very duty driven, like a very dutiful young woman with a high capacity for endurance and, and a great love of virtue, but that doesn't govern her heart. Right, It doesn't govern her, Mm -hmm, her mm -hmm. feelings for this man. And, and she's trying to make sense of that too, because she just expected her life to be this like certain way. So, you know, some of that's about to break free in the novel and we get more of a glimpse into, into the emotions, but right now everything's just kind of under the surface Mm -hmm.
1: and, and bubbling up. I don't know. Why do you think he loves her or she loves him? Well, my, you know, when I taught this, um, not the most recent time, but I want to say maybe two years ago, a year or so ago, it was a large class and they were just special. Every class is special in its own way. But these were some some fierce and impassionate students. And it was, again, a large class. They, and I, you know, we need to not uh we need to hold our own present eyes and judgment intention with the way we should judge you know the the world of the novel but my students were convinced that that rochester was grooming jane and he's an abuser uh they were pinpointing all of the sort of you know the the grooming mechanisms that he was using even what you mentioned you know just kind of recognizing her in her pain and being nice to her and kind to her. And then, you know, then he dresses up as a gypsy, right? We haven't gotten to that. That's a trap. Might
0: as, we might as well get there. Yeah. Now.
1: Yeah. 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 That's a trap for her. You know, just, I mean that, that, this whole, that whole scene, the sure char- game of charades and the, the gypsy the fortune teller those are so interesting on a literal level in terms of the plot of the story but also Mm -hmm. just the symbolism and you know just sort of the way that they this motif of like he's he's wearing a disguise and he they're he's a player he's playing he's playing people there's a way of seeing that as uh you know kind of sinister really i mean there's a way i guess to kind of explain it in a less you know a more charitable way but um there's a sinister um
0: well what's the charitable reading he's just a jerk
1: (laughs) oh well and i well and i guess maybe maybe you know i guess party games are you know (laughs) are not that unusual or just you know just playing tricks and pranks um we do that we have our own ways of doing that today i i guess halloween parties masquerades i don't know I guess I guess maybe it would seem more normal in, in those times. But um, yeah, yeah. it's pretty, you know, I, I, I can see why my students really, you know, they saw Rochester as an abuser grooming his victim.
0: Do they end up no. um, <laughs>
1: I'm changing their minds?
0: <laughs> would well, they end up liking the book?
1: Um, it it was a tough sell to this crowd. I don't know. It just happened to have a lot of students, I think, who are really in in tune to you know some of the current problems in in church and society, and so they mm. were. I mean, they did, but they they really they they weren't won over by Rochester by the end.
0: Hmm. Do you think Bronte is trying to throw the readers off the Rochester scent? I can't think of a better way of saying it. In other words, to make the reader have some distance from Jane to make it more complex, a more complex experience?
1: I th- I honestly just think that Bronte, you know, Bronte, not Jane Eyre, but mm-hmm. Bronte doesn't recognize the kind of power dynamics and problems that we see today. I mean, this, we're, we're, I mean, we're still trying to see how, some of the worst abuses that we're uncovering could have happened um, because we also don't recognize these dynamics. You know, we haven't recognized them. That's why they've been, and, and been allowed uh, to, so yeah, I don't, yeah. Happen. So I, yeah. Think Br- I think Bronte was a person of her times in that regard. Hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. So, so, I don't so, think she is, in di- I don't think she is by any means pointing a finger at Rochester as being abusive towards Jane or she's like, he is, he is the Byronic hero. hero.
0: He's just, he's, he's just being Byronic. a
2: sexy, sexy man to her. To her. <laughs> like, so, right, The
1: mystery. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: How, so as an aside, Karen, when you're teaching college students, I mean, we'll run into this with people who are reading the book who probably feel similarly to those students. Mm-hmm. How do you teach? Um, this is going to sound, I don't mean it to sound, Critical. How do you teach a group like that to let the book be the book, to let it have its own Mm -hmm. life, to let it breathe, and to take themselves Mm -hmm. and their current, our current culture out of it? How do you teach them Mm -hmm. to be respectful to the book while also not diminishing or taking for granted the concerns that they are bringing as individual readers?
1: I mean, that, that's, that's the most crucial question. And that's actually why we read literature because we should be, we're always doing that. And the more literature we read, the more we're, we're the better able we are to see the distinctions between our own, you know, our own moral framework and the blind spots in that time and place. And then hopefully ultimately we can at least recognize that we have our own moral blind spots as well. And so you know, how to do that is to always kind of, again, you can't do it with just one well, you can try to do it with one book, but that's the whole project of of, of reading literature is to um, to distinguish. Well, as as Bronte, conventionality is not morality, right? That's what she says in the in the um, preface to the second edition. That's what we, our constant task is to figure out the difference between conventionality and morality. So there are some conventions in the world of this novel, like oh, an older man who's wealthy and has this kind of power is someone who can lord it over a young servant girl. And that's, that's okay. That will even be attractive. Um, that's not a dynamic that doesn't exist today. <laughs> and it still exists a great deal. Um, and so, yeah, that that's just what I try to, some of the things we've done here is to explain how, um, you know, well, in this day and age, it would have been common for a, a master to seduce a servant girl and have no qualms about it. So that's the constant challenge. And
0: But th- so do the students ever get to the point where they say okay where they can separate those two and i
1: mean ideally ideally they they do uh, um sometimes you, you know if if it's just a if they're less experienced at it and it's just a raw emotional kind yeah. of reading i mean we and we all have that response as, as well sometimes we just read something and we can't get past our own visceral, visceral response right. but that's also why rereading is so so good yeah. and having was, conversations yeah. like this yeah.
0: do you find that the that those students or anybody else you talk to that has a similar response, like if those group of students read it again, would, mm-hmm. have you ever tried teaching a class where you read a book more than once?
1: Um, n- no, but actually, I think I, I think I have a way of answering a question that I just thought of. So when I was teaching that the novel in that class that I was just talking about, I just realized this: I was teaching it in a women's literature class. Hmm. So that's a whole different dynamic. We were reading a lot. You know, we were reading, we were still reading things chronologically, Mm -hmm. but the time I just taught it this semester, we were reading Jane Eyre in a development of the British novel class. So Mm -hmm. when you begin with Pamela, again, I know I keep referring to Pamela, (laughs) uh, and if you've not, we maybe we need to do a close reads of Pamela someday. (laughs) But when you begin with Pamela, everything's uphill from there. (laughs) (laughs) mean in terms of like the place of women and the dynamics between men and women i mean pamela presents such a dire picture Mm. that my students find very unbelievable so there so i spend some time you know providing historical context and and uh historical documents saying look this was this was not considered unbelievable at this time and so so teaching it in that context makes everything else seem a lot better including Rochester.
0: <laughs> Do you think that this is, and Heidi, I'll turn to you in a second. Do you think that students are more liable to read it, focusing especially on their own responses and the times that we live in now when they're in college or when they're in high school? Now I know you don't teach high school, but you know, I taught high school English and that was a big problem even with 15, 16 year olds. I mean, teenagers are pretty obsessed with themselves anyway. But, you know, that's that's a, it's a skill to be able to read something closely and let it breathe let it be its own thing. So do well, they get more skilled at it or do they get more consumed with movements and what's going on in the world?
1: No, they do get more skilled at it and then of course then the other thing is that when I'm teaching works like this it's it's always in a, a class that English majors are taking. So these are students yeah. who yeah, you know sort of understand that. I'm not I haven't taught a novel like this in like a, you know, a freshman survey class that students right. are required to take. So I would say yeah. in those freshman survey classes, you'll find, you know, kind of halfway in between the the high school, um, you know, uh, yeah. reader response and you're kind of teaching them how to read in a different way. But by the time they're English majors, you know, they're a little better at knowing yeah, how to fair. read more critically.
0: Helpful. So Heidi, <laughs> Heidi, you did you want to say something?
2: No, I I, I think that there's so many things that Karen is saying that I just wanted, you know, three tears, like this whole idea of reading with humility and and letting the novel teach us how to see it rather than sitting in judgment over it. And and that is a hard it's a hard thing to learn to approach a novel that comes from a completely different worldview with a modicum of humility. It's a hard thing to do, and it's a hard thing to teach because it's a virtue on the part of the student. It's, as, as readers, there are intellectual virtues, right? Um, and, and as readers, we, we ought to cultivate a discernment and humility in approaching a novel. And we, we can say, okay, so I probably wouldn't date Rochester, but that doesn't. <laughs> Like that doesn't mean that he that that he has nothing to offer. That he's an abuser, right? So, um, and and I think that we have right now a culture that is training, intentionally training readers in school to sit in judgment rather than to approach with humility. Um, and so teachers like us, we have to overcome then kind of the natural resistance of an adolescent mind to new ideas um, and to new ways of seeing the world, and also an intentional kind of self-righteousness within the culture that says we are, are better and we ought not to read books on their own terms. We ought to read them on ours. And, and so there's, there's kind of a couple of, of big hurdles to cross when you're approaching a novel that's being seen now as sexist or racist or whatever. Um, and, and sometimes they are, and that's when it takes not just humility, but also discernment because there are some things that we ought in a novel to condemn. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so again, there's, it's complicated to read a novel from a different time Which is, as Karen says, why we read and then we reread and we we say, oh, I used to think this the first time I read it, but now I see it differently and creates conversation. And it's it's kind Mm. of a microcosm of moral development, I think.
1: It really is. And th- that the mm-hmm. humility that you're talking about, like if we can't read a novel from a different and, and inherently limited um, point of view from a different time and place, then we will lack the humility that we need to judge our own. Exactly. Society, right? I mean, so it works both ways. The more humility we bring to a text, the more that humility we can also bring back to the real world and say, you know, okay, again, like I said before, okay, here are some blind spots in this world. Hmm, What are our blind spots? Where are we getting it wrong? Um, because exactly. we aren't any better. We just are have different blind spots
0: we're just different yeah we're just (laughs) bad in different ways
1: (laughs) right we're the the same
2: fallen as individuals Mm and societies as any generation before us
0: we just have more technology
2: Mm -hmm. (sighs) yes we sure Um, do
0: we for the sake of time you know i want to make sure we this is a great aside and i've got so many follow-up questions i could ask um but but I feel like we probably do need to make sure we focus on at least a couple things more things in this section. So before we go, I'm going to break away from tradition here. Each of you pick one passage or section or theme or something that is in this section that we that you desperately want to talk about. <laughs> um, do either of you have anything that's you know? F- I, we'll do this I for mean, the sake of time to make sure we each you each get. I to think a,
2: we a, do a, need to talk about something. the. I think we do need to talk about the gypsy scene and what we how we what we think is going on between the two of them in that scene.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that is 20, 19, 19, Mm, no, 18,
1: 18 and 19. I think because I, well, because we, we want to also talk about not only what happens between Jane and the gypsy, but even before that, because I think that the, you know, the, the interaction he has with Blanche Ingram um, before Jane Mm -hmm. goes in is, is important because it sets, it sets up a foil. So, I mean, I, I, and the, well, the greatest, the greatest foil, of course, is the fact that Jane figures it out. Right. Jane doesn't really fall for um, right. she knows something is wrong. It's nonsense. Blanche, yes. Yeah. Uh, but Blanche Ingram is, you know, she just gets completely sucked in and she's upset. And I mean, this is in chapter 18. Let's see.
0: On 329 is the part where it's where Frederick Lynn says, Wow, she's a real sorceress. Let us have her in, of course, which is a pretty funny little <laughs> She's a real sorceress, so bring her in. And then um, she's yeah. shockingly old and thus they want to be able to interact with her.
1: Rochester makes a handsome man but an ugly lady, I guess. <laughs> um Okay, so Miss Ingram's goes in first, and then do yeah, do where do we find out what she? I mean, she comes out; she's all distressed, um, but we don't know why. Yeah, yet
2: I can't. I do. I do think doesn't doesn't he tell her?
1: Yeah, in their conversation, told, right?
2: Yes, and that's so he he does tell. Her, I don't want to give any spoilers. Just to confirm, he tells Jane what the disguised gypsy told miss Ingram that about his fortune. Okay. So in doing that, he's, Mm -hmm. he's doing one of two things, right? He's either testing miss Ingram to see if she has a true affection for him or he's decided not to marry her. And he's just kind of giving her an excuse to break up with him. Um,
0: you're talking about Blanche.
2: Yeah. In telling, yeah, in telling Blanche Ingram that his fortune is, is it a third of what she had expected it to be, a half or a third. Um, And so she's, you know, downcast and disheartened by this news. So anyway, the point is, by telling Miss Ingram, he's committing like a decisive act of choice here by telling her that. It's a lie. He has all the fortune. It's not true. So he wants to either test her or end this budding relationship.
0: I just realized that's was You were was really on mute. Song.
2: Yeah. What yeah. Did you so
0: say? did yeah. I find it interesting that this is not exactly, but pretty much the middle of the story. Tim always likes he's always fascinated by what's in the middle. And this is one of those pretty much at the middle point of our story scenes where the gypsy the gypsy shows up. I wonder wonder what that means. Maybe we should talk about that later and see if it comes back comes back around. What? But oh go ahead. No, go ahead.
2: I was going to say, I really want to hear what Karen thinks is going on. Like, what is Rochester doing here?
0: Why is he choosing to be sneaky like this?
2: Yeah, like, what is his purpose with, specifically with Jane?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm looking at the section on page 344 in this volume, which is chapter two, or um, uh, chapter 19 in volume two. They've had the conversation, um, and this is where she figures out this is halfway down the page again. I looked at the face, which was no longer turned for me. On the contrary, the bonnet was doffed. The bandage displaced. The head advanced. Well, Jane, do you know me? Asked the familiar voice. Only take off the red cloak, sir. And then, but the string is in a knot. Help me. Break it, sir. There then. Off ye lendings. And Mr. Rochester stepped out of his disguise. Now, sir, what a strange idea. But well carried out, eh? Don't you think so? With the ladies, you must have managed well. But not with you? You did not act the character of a gypsy with me. What character did I act? My own? No, some unaccountable one. In short, I believe you've been trying to draw me out or in. You have been talking nonsense to make me talk nonsense. It is scarcely fair, sir. Now this is where where I can understand my students who are super alert to, you know, abuse and grooming. I mean, this he is kind of trying to set a trap for her in a you know a, in a psychologically and emotionally manipulative way, but. But, you know, you could make the argument, but even just more on a literary level or a symbolic level, I mean, just this whole idea of Jane, do you know me? I mean, does she recognize him and, and how she has the string is in a knot, help me? Like she's constantly helping him through this novel from mm-hmm. their first encounter uh when the horse is frightened and uh it also shows you know as, as I think I mentioned before that she just she's just not easily fooled I mean she's not she's not a suspicious cynical person but she's also not looking to be deceived in the way mm-hmm. maybe someone like Blanche Ingram is but she you know she does see she, she calls him out for basically trying to trick her. She, I love you know, that he's trying to, you're trying to draw me out or in. That's mm-hmm. an interesting turn of phrase. Like drawing someone out is what's been going on all along in their conversations. But at what point does that become drawing her in? Right. That's right. interesting. Do you think he wants, is he trying to, does he
2: know he's in love with her right now? And is he trying to get her to show him a sign of her affection for him? Try and make her jealous? Like what's...
0: Well, if he doesn't know that he's in love with her, he acts like he's in love with her. Mm-hmm. Because, Like he calls right. her, he has all kinds of pet names. Um, he, you know, he definitely is affectionate towards her in weird sorts of ways where he's fighting against his own, you know, what he thinks he's mm-hmm. supposed to, how he's supposed to act. Mm-hmm. He's having this conflict between his instinct and his mm-hmm. training
1: and it's interesting that he um that he like this this moment is really important because it's almost mm-hmm. as though he puts himself into he, a disguise he disguises himself also to figure out kind of what what he's doing there's a there's a way of you know role-playing here' that we've it's you know a trope in um a lot of literature and then this is also the moment you know it's right at this moment that mr mason arrives right at this time so this Mm -hmm. time when he's you know in he's disguising himself he's tricking he's trying to draw her out draw her in and i think also understand his own uh i mean he he is testing her just but he was also testing blanche right so i think he's right. also trying to figure out he's comparing was. them yes yes exactly and then mr mason arrives um and all hell breaks loose and that's not a spoiler because we've already seen right. that a bit <laughs> um so yeah i i find this whole section
2: intriguing because i think it is ambiguous i think I, like the most extreme charitable toward Mr. Rochester interpretation is he is in love with Jane. He does not intend to marry Blanche, but he cannot read her and is trying to figure out if she has feelings for him. And so he 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 creates yeah, this he elaborate sure ruse. Yeah, he's clear. Exactly. He's created this elaborate ruse to try to read her and he got rid of Blanche already. By mm-hmm. picking her first and telling her so that she, you know, to kind of end this on her end, which, again, the most charitable possible motive for what he did, does to Blanche is so that she can kind of leave him behind uh, and break up with him and not embarrass her. Like she's so like, publicly embarrass her. So she gets her to break up with him. Yeah. And, and he wants to be able to be free of Blanche before he... Approaches Jane, so that's. I mean, even so, even 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 that, even if all that is true, he still is lying and tricking and manipulating these women mm-hmm. instead of just being honest. And so that's the well, most Heidi. charitable reason is. Almost every
0: great matter. love story in movies and literature and whatever it is. I'll have somebody tricking the other, somebody (laughs) in the other, you know, like I said, you've got mail. A
2: cynical (laughs) person might say all of them. (laughs)
0: Yeah. You've got mail. If you think about it, it's quite dark.
1: Totally. Totally. Well, and again, so don't think to, about it. <laughs> not to just not to keep um, beating this abuse drum, but um, but it is a question that this is we've talked about Charlotte Bronte being kind of, you know, a product of her times and not seeing things the way we might see them. But yet she's still she is seeing them in a truthful way, because if Rochester is you know, somewhat abusive or narcissistic. I mean, a question that always comes up that I that I don't think anyone, you know, I think the answer is we don't know. Like, so does someone who's, does an abusive person who's grooming know he's grooming? Right. Right. It, and it, it, like we it, probably not. We it doesn't even matter because they are so, you know, it's part of the personality like the, they just don't even necessarily know that they are being mm-hmm. manipulative or narcissistic or, or whatever. So that's, again, why I. I, you know, Bronte is just a brilliant. She's painting a character, these characters, in in pretty brilliant ways. Because real people, you know, who are complicated, which is most people, um, <laughs> are, you know, are, you you can't. They're complicated. Yeah, I mean, most
2: back back in this time, they didn't have like the fifty woke rules for wooing a woman. <laughs> so. <that's,
0: laughs> They also didn't have enneagrams <laughs> to make sure that you were a good match,
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> can we
0: can we read? I want to read a little bit here yes. on three forty six and three forty seven because i I think it's
2: mm.
0: so bizarre and mm. hilarious and great like I think this is great writing by Bronte. so he she says that Mason has come, and he kind of flips out, right. And then it says, she says, he well, was says, he hardly seemed to know what he was doing. Do you feel ill, sir? I inquired. "'Jane, I've got a blow. I've got a blow, Jane,' he staggered. "'Oh, lean on me, sir. "'Jane, you offered me your shoulder once before. And let me have it now.' "'Yes, sir. Yes, and my arm.' "'He sat down and made me sit beside him, holding my hand in both his own. "'He chafed it, gazing on me, at the same time, with the most troubled and dreary look. "'My little friend,' said he, "'I wish I were in a quiet island with only you, "'and trouble and danger and hideous recollections removed from me. "'Can I help you, sir?' I'd give my life to serve you. Jane, if aid is wanted, I'll seek it at your hands. I promise you that. Thank you, sir. Tell me what to do. I'll try at least to do it. And then he asks for a glass of wine. This this little section here is so weird (laughs) Uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, not weird, like weird, great. Because he's so dramatic, right? He's basically this fainting (laughs) Byronic hero all of a sudden. And... He then becomes, blow. yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to remember that line for the next time I'm upset. I'm going to tell my wife that. Um And then she says, the funniest thing, she says, oh, lean on me, sir. Which is kind of interestingly subversive. But then he says, you offered me your shoulder now. Let me have it now. He She just offered it. And, and then he asks her, to do exactly... She says, lean on me. And then he says, let me lean on your shoulder. I just think... And then she says... "Yeah." Basically, I almost read that like she's saying, um, yeah, I just offered my shoulder. And she's like, and would you like my arm too? And instead of taking her arm, he just sits down and then takes her hand. And then he kind of like goes into wooing mode where he's like, what if we were on an island all by ourselves and everything else bad in the world was gone? And then she's like, I'd give my life to serve you. So it's kind of working.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah. then...
0: He, she says, oh, if I need your help, I promise you I'll, I'll ask you. And then she's like, thank you. That's, that's wonderful. Tell me what to do. And then he's like, how about some wine? <laughs> so the, in the end, he just wants, he asks for wine. Like the, the, the amount of, I mean, this is a very kind of like emo <laughs> scene, but it's, there's also a lot more, like on the surface, it's kind of just silly and bizarre the way they're going back and forth. Cause it's like, they're kind of reaching well literally they're kind of reaching for each other but mm-hmm. they're not really they haven't found any kind of actually actual relationship footing there's he's she's offering help and then he's asking for help but not really taking what she's asking and then they he gets all dreamy about it and they never really find their footing but they're trying to reach for something so it's as good as any you could get in any kind of you've got male Romantic thing, but the b- how bizarre and gothic the whole thing is just heightens heightens the mm-hmm. tension of everything. Because behind that, you know, you've got fires and burning mattresses and murderous maids, blood sucking, yeah, <laughs> Grace Pool and this house and Blanche Ingram on the other side of the wall or wherever she is. I'm imagining her being on the other side of the wall listening. <laughs> but um I just I I just love. Those like 12 lines and how bizarre they are. I'm kind of rambling now, but Heidi, <laughs> go ahead.
2: <laughs> I, no, I'm with you. Their, their whole interaction at this point is so interesting to me. And even, even the, the disguise is like this little microcosm of what's going on between them, right? Because she's the only one who can see through the disguise and know that it's him, right? That's significant, mm-hmm. as Karen said. It's very symbolic. But she still has no idea what he's doing, like she's like, I see you and and she's,
0: she's hurt. being dumb and, and I still like yes, you. Yes.
2: And it hurts her feelings because she had, and she doesn't know. Like she can't read him, but she sees him. Like and, and that kind of that dissonance between those two things is just kind of an interesting little to your point dynamic between the two of them. She wants to help and he needs a lot of help. And remembering There's a lot more of the book to go. So,
0: (laughs) right, right. Yeah. That's, yeah. We're going to, maybe this question I'm about to ask, we should save for later. But do you think he's ever really been seen before? No. Is that, I mean, that's an easy
2: question for me. So, is that
0: why she is appealing to him? Because he recognizes, although maybe he wouldn't say it that way, that she, sees him. Like she can see, Mm -hmm. no one else sees him for who he really is, which I know is the kind of trite way of putting it, but Mm -hmm. no, I don't have time to think of something else to say.
2: Well, I think that's what we all want, right? Like we all want to be loved for who we are. We all want, when we all have a persona, we all do. And, and we want the person who can see past the disguise and like, I see you, I see you in there and, and we'll pursue pursue our true self. And, and that, that's the thing that they both, I think, offer to each other, but there's so many limits on them. There's, there's still so much to be revealed, but right now it's almost like this building up of um, the tension um, and what that's going to end up requiring of them.
0: Yeah. You got to have, got to have a good bizarre sequence of romantic tension in any truly great I mean, novel. And who doesn't
2: want to help some guy by guarding over someone who is attacked by someone who wants to suck their blood while he goes to get the doctor? I mean, that is like super romantic.
0: Right. So, just sit there in the dark.
2: And don't talk by all like don't <laughs> don't talk to each other. I'm gonna go get the doctor. Don't let him bleed out. This is so romantic. I love him.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the and then the rest of the novel is about to happen. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess everything else kind of does spring from here. Karen, was there... Well, yeah, what were you going to say?
1: Um, there was just, just one one thing that we sort... I know we mentioned, but sort of skipped over. I just wanted to emphasize it. And it's just the game of charades that was in chapter 18. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, just again, there's a way in which... This charade, there's a charade going on, um, yeah. <laughs> all this time, and uh, and so just like the gypsy, there's a disguise, the charades there, and then it's just interesting too that um, because because there is this question, ongoing question of who Rochester was, is going to marry, if he's going to get married, all of those things that that first charade is you know is a, is a, the answer is bride, and uh, so that's some good literary foreshadowing as well.
0: So, Are you telling us that there maybe, might be a bride in the story? Yeah.
1: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Shock, but that it was all a charade, shocker, right? But maybe.
0: <laughs> Do you... Um, so I, I had an interesting question one time from somebody who was... I don't know. I guess I'll just call them again because I can't think of anything else on the spur of the moment. A literary... A literature skeptic. And he was like, when I see stuff like that, it feels... I don't remember how he put it. He basically said it, it feels contrived or too cute or something like that. How do you respond to someone like that that says something like, well, this foreshadowing yeah. is just a contrived cute right. bit of thing? Like the,
1: the response to that is when you're reading this for the first time, or any good work of literature for the first time, I, I doubt most people really see it that way. I, and, and I mean, it, 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 Do you it's,
0: mean see the foreshadowing? See it as foreshadow? right,
1: right. right. Um, I mean, after a while, when you're trained and you're familiar with all the symbols, if you've read yeah. a lot, then yes, then you, you oh, here's you begin this to is see symbol. You begin to see but, and, but right. Yeah. But most of the time, um, so it becomes only obvious after a discussion and that's just not fair. That's not saying, Oh, that, that's, you know, that's so heavy handed. Um, just because afterwards it's, um, yeah. you can see it. Yeah. Because
0: you've read it three times and talked about it for six yeah, hours. Yeah, exactly. So is the mark of good literature that those sorts of like, can you have good literature where those sorts of things happen? Obviously.
2: Yes. Yes. Shakespeare. Right. It like gets. As Northrop Fry says, like literature is not the same world as what we live in. It has its own rules, it has its own reality, it has its own sphere of of greatness. That if you're comparing literature to the real world, if you're judging a work of literature by the same rules by which we live our lives, then of course it's contrived, right?
0: <laughs> or vice versa. But-
2: Yes, or vice versa. But the entire point is that literature is its own world, with its own reality, with its own rules. And one of the things that makes a great work of literature is foreshadowing and symbolism, uh, and and these kind of conventions, these themes and motifs, and uh, character arcs and archetypes, and all the things that go together, so that we can. So that we have a canon of literature. and so i I don't think you need to have special knowledge to read great literature. That's something we've talked about a million times on the on the podcast. You don't need to know all the jargon um and all those kinds of things. But because literature is its own world, kind of it's it's worthwhile for neophytes, you know, to familiarize themselves with those kinds of literary conventions because I think it actually makes it more enjoyable to think mm-hmm. about it as a different world with its own rules.
0: Well, we've been going for our allotted amount amount of time. So Heidi, it's time for those final thoughts. final thoughts. Those dreaded final thoughts. <laughs> Heidi, you go first and then Karen. And then if you want I, to include something yeah. that you're looking forward to.
2: That yeah. So there's so many things that we talked about today that I want to circle back to once some of these, once some of the secrets have been revealed. Because this is a book that rewards rereading. <laughs> and It is, I think when, as you said earlier, I think you said it, David, it's once you do know the full landscape of the novel, it adds a whole layer of pathos to what's going on with all the characters in this section. So Hmm. I would say if for our readers who didn't understand what Rochester was doing right here or whatever, and are still like, I don't know what the heck is going on, hang in there because there's there's more to be revealed that actually impacts our understanding of what's going on now that we really couldn't get into today without telling secrets. Hmm. Um, and I am really, I am looking forward to, I, I really do like the building. T- I like Rochester. I'm not one of the people who thinks he's an abuser. So um, I, I enjoy the building tension between them and I'm looking for some kind something to break free because you could tell right now they, they both need an explanation from each other. So I'm rooting for that.
0: The rereading thing is so true. I am a good example of that because I always had, like I said, at the first episode, I had a lot of respect for this book, but it had been quite a while since I read it. And I remembered the broad strokes. I remembered certain passages and, you know, I said, we studied it in college. So I had sort of that sort of respect for it, but I'm absolutely loving this reading of it. And it's Mm. kind of emerging as one of my favorite books I've read in a long time, you know, in large part because of Karen's, Karen's edition, which is so readable, um, in fact, I had someone come into the store the other day, by the way, looking at it and say, this is a beautiful book. Just so you know, I wanted to tell you. Oh, perfect you. stranger commenting on that in the store, in a store full of awesome. thousands of books. Um, That's cool. So yeah, yeah I've I, rereading it this time, having known the broad strokes and just kind of diving in. And again, maybe I'm in a better place mm-hmm. to love it, but I'm loving it this time as a reread. And I, there was a, I noticed there was an, another guy on, on the group who said that he couldn't put it down and he finished it and he's like karen's so right this is everything a novel should be so
2: (laughs) i love that
0: yeah i'm excited to actually get through the whole thing i'm doing it i'm being patient but i'm excited to get to the end with this new reread Mm -hmm. and then look back again for the third or fourth time but with more looking back with more pleasure than as an assignment i think that probably was a big part of it too right karen Final thoughts. Yeah,
1: just for my final thoughts, I want to point to um, the end of chapter twenty, the the end of the reading for today, where this dramatic thing has taken place with this stabbing is very, you know, very melodramatic and gothic. But in the last couple of pages, there is, you know, this really deep and profound conversation about sin and repentance Mm -hmm. and and where one goes for to seek forgiveness. You know, I won't take the time to read the whole thing, but again, just to point out that this is such a Christian novel. Um, mm-hmm. Yet it doesn't, you know, it, it's the it doesn't overwhelm you with its Christianity. Um, but it's when you stop and look at it, it's there, and so. On page 369, uh, it says, again, Mr. Rochester propounded his query. Is the wandering and sinful but now rest-seeking and repentant man justified in daring the world's opinion in order to attach to him forever this gentle, gracious, genial stranger, thereby securing his own peace of mind and regeneration of life? Sir, I answered, a wanderer's repose or a sinner's reformation should never depend on a fellow creature. Men and women die, philosophers falter in wisdom, and Christians in goodness. If anyone you know has suffered and erred, let him look higher than his equals for strength to amend and solace to heal. Um, and these words, mm-hmm. when she says a wanderer's repose or a sinner's reformation should never depend on a fellow creature— I mean, that is a sermon in itself. That is a sermon that we all need to hear over and over again. <laughs> there is just so much wisdom packed there. And this is also without a spoiler, this is the sermon that Jane's going to need to tell herself, um, in pages mm. to come.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Something to look forward to. <laughs> well, this has been fun. This is I mean it's a long book and even with as many episodes as we're gonna do, we can really only so closely, <laughs> unfortunately, there's there's plenty that we're we're going to miss out on. I guess that's where the Q and A is helpful. So if you're listening and you have you know something you you're bothered that we missed or something, store it away or post it on the on the Facebook page. And when it comes time for the Q and A episode, we'll post that thread and you can post your questions there. And then of course you can also email. The show so if you want to um send your questions to david at goldberrybooks.com then i will um keep those questions for the q a and maybe even bring them up on the on the next episode so once again tim we love you we're praying for you best to, to your whole family um we're thinking about you so with that for heidi white and for karen swallow prior i'm david kern thanks so much for listening and until next time happy reading